this is the topic that makes me very sad, uh, more like rage actually, but let's, let's churn through some things because there, there is an actual chance here to talk about research in general that I like to do once in a while, just to go over some different ways things are done. Uh, because this is actually a nice blend of what I love the most, the, the science of biology and physical medicine, but also now with social science. So you will see, as we scoot ahead here, uh, this is from the Journal of Social Science and Medicine. And it was a, th this particular position paper, I'm going to call it, article, is a bit, oh, I, I can't even really call it a meta-analysis, except that you have to keep in mind that this is more social science than medicine, or it's from a social perspective looking at medicine. So it's just a little bit different, kind of like writing styles are different between those disciplines. But income inequality in health, a causal review. I didn't know a lot about this, some of the relationships we're going to talk about until I dove in uh, quite a bit here this week. But there has always been a little bit of, um, maybe a, de a debate between how much can we really extrapolate from different forms of, of health, different ways to measure health and health outcomes. And so a lot of people just did not trust the science on this. And this particular position paper in 2015 did a, a really good historical review and their goal isn't to show you every single health outcome and exactly what happens between income brackets, but but really just to look at what can we know and why and, and where do we get that confidence. So, so keep that in mind as we go through this. We're not going to talk about individual disease states and so forth. It's going to be really looking at, is there a relationship between health status, early mortality, and all of that, and your ability to care for yourself because you have a, a certain standard level of, of personal revenue. So income inequality in health, a causal review. Um, this is very, very graphic heavy, which I think makes it kind of interesting to look at. But when you're looking at the index of health and social problems, and remember, correlation doesn't equal causation. So just because it rains today, it doesn't mean that we can look at every single thing that happened today. Like I got my oil changed every time I get my oil changed. That means it's going to rain. That's a causal relationship because both things happened. That, of course, is silly, but that was really the whole basis of this. Uh, but here, here's kind of how things measure up. Index of health and social problems on the left so health problems and social problems, we'll get into some of those differences, and then income inequality from high to low. And you you do see a, a strong correlation, doesn't mean correlation equals causation, but there are these correlates. And of course, the USA way up here by itself, because as you'll see, we have the highest level of income equality among developed nations. Uh, and we therefore have a massive disparity uh, between the rich and the poor when it comes to health. So I'm going to read through a couple things about their premise here, and then we'll get into some more, a couple, uh, two or three different divisions of information here that I'll explain to you. In this paper, we will focus on the strongest and most important claim underpinning and effect of inequality on health, that large income difference between rich and poor that leads to an increasing frequency of the most, most of the problems associated with low social status within societies. 
Uh, figure one provides an illustration of the relationship with which this paper is concerned. It shows a cross-sectional association between income inequality in developed countries in an index which combines data on life expectancy, mental illness, obesity, infant mortality, teen births, homicides, imprisonment, educational attainment, distress, social mobility. So um, some of the things that they went through as a little bit of a historical view of of why this is still a little bit um, not relied upon as, as the most accurate science, why there are still a lot of questions about is there true correlation here. Uh, we didn't really start looking at the disparities in income equality and some of these social stratifications until the 70s. So they first started looking at homicide. Um, you know, why are there more homicides among poorer communities and so forth? Like, why would that happen? Aren't those people just as nice as somebody who drives a Beamer? Uh, mortality. Do people who are poor really die sooner? And why aren't they drinking the same water, eating the same food? Uh, epidemiology and public health uh, moving up into the 90s. Violence, interesting time because that's when uh, violent crime started to precipitously decline in the U.S. in the 90s. Um, murder and so forth is about half of what it was at its peak in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, more criminology and sociality stats started being looked at, health in general. And that's that's one of the question marks among research like this is, you know, what are we going to, what do we call health? How do we measure that? Is it just life expectancy? Is it just um, infant mortality? What is this? So they've, they become more and more nuanced uh, in recent years, looking at steeper social gradients and societal inequity uh, or inequality. So, so really starting to look at, you know, you can't just say if you're in, in this income range versus this, here's a direct line and then leave it and just say, well, A equals B. It's, it's, it's looking at some of the reasons why and looking at some of the cross-sectional analysis between different countries who who may also have some income inequality. You know, what, what are some of the other items that, that we may need to look at other than just income inequality? That's why it's just not something that is, um, you know, super concrete. It's still very fledgling. So one of the things that this particular position paper, let me, let me actually skirt back up here. I don't know if you guys have recognized this, but uh, now... I try to anyway, whenever I show you a particular study or meta-analysis, I'll always give, you know, my link to it here. So you can always ask me for that later and I can give that to you. But you, if you even just look this up, you know, you'll probably get it in 10 different places in terms of, you know, where you can look it up yourself. But this particular paper, besides giving the history of why we even look at this and how recent it is, they also gave a really good uh, tutorial from a social science perspective, how we reach conclusions of causality. So I'll read through these briefly, but uh, Paparian uh, theory testing, he was a, a researcher a couple hundred years ago, and, and he always, or he brought about the premise that for something to be an effect, to have a causal effect, it would have to be novel. It's something that just doesn't happen um, all the time. It's, you know, A, a plus B equals C all the time. Wait a second, why over here did it equal 
Z, you know, what, what happened there? There's something causal there that changed and that becomes of interest to us. Epidemiological criteria, looking at population distributions, as I was talking about some of this to a friend of mine today, you know, anytime you make a claim like income inequality leads to poor health outcomes, you start saying, oh, well, what about this? And but this, and it's like, yes, of course, there are always outliers and bell curves and reasons why it doesn't hold up as a black and white law, but you're looking at major population movement. What's what's happening that you can say, well, the, you know, the entire wave is turning this direction. Consistency is is something provable over and over again. Is there temporality? Is, is it true over time? Um, kind of along that, uh, you can even look down at coherence, which is, uh, is it if it's true here, is it true in France? Is it true, uh, you know, if you're looking at certain degrees, is it true just at this edge of, of the, the population or this one or that one? Uh, but strength of association, looking at, kind of p values what you know how can you really say this is what what is causing something specificity dose response um you know we talked about that sometimes in biology just threshold response versus a very linear response to what is happening cessation of exposure if somebody moves out in this case of an income um bracket let's say gen generational poverty or generational ascent uh does that change uh, that would be a great indication that there was real causality there. Uh, are there alternative explanations? Are, is there something we're just even missing? You know, we got to put that through a grid. Biological plausibility, which is something I rely on a lot when I look at, at physiology, which is, you know, here's something that we're testing, but is that just a weird anomaly? Because what if it completely contradicts all known physiology? So either we have a complete misunderstanding of something we've been banking on for a long time, or something's just wrong with the way we're running this particular study, something like that. All right. So uh, my, the reason I said I wanted to bring this up is this particular paper, if you were to go look at it, they certainly have dozens and dozens and dozens of citations, mainly looking at the social science research of these causes and effects. But they're not really analyzing. I mean, they kind of do. They're, they're looking at the studies to say, well, here's how they did it. And obviously, it was really, really good or really bad for these reasons. But more so than that, they're looking at applying this to what I said one slide earlier, which are here are the topics we're interested in. Can we really say this was appropriate science? So as I mentioned, it, it's just a really good paper to read through if you're interested in what social science research is like. So continuing up with their premise comments, our aim in this review is to go beyond the counting methodology of previous major reviews, these mostly divided studies into supportive mix or unsupportive of it, the income inequality health relationship. Uh, among mixed studies, which showed some but not all relationships to be significant, results within a study might vary by geographic scale or by health outcome measure of inequality. Again, there's the dose dependence. Gender or age of subjects, merely counting these adds nothing to interpretation, even if we count more. Instead, we conduct a causal review to give a more structured and coherent framework of our examination of the literature. So it it really is as you saw in the title of their, their study, looking at, is anything going to hold up? 
and, and why? You know, what, what can we say is really a cause of income inequality? And I think by the time we get to discussing this together as a group, you'll see that you can make a lot of your own hypotheses as to why income inequality leads to these poor outcomes. That's that's the real money shot for us. I don't want to just go through all these sad stats and and you know depress everybody. I I want people of all levels where you may see yourself in this say, well, hey, you know, what then do I have to do to be part of the solution for myself and my own family? Or maybe the culture I want to be a part of, how do I change that? Uh, it's, it's just very, very important that you you guys understand this is um, an aggressive study because they they went very hard in the in the analytics and the statistical reviews to, to make sure they can prove something almost as in a court of law to say, here's where all these questions are. Here's where we may or may not agree, because there are some things like if you look at homicide or infant mortality or some studies, if you just say income inequality equals poor health, you can look at some things. One of the examples they use, which is that infant mortality may be awful because of income inequality, like three times as many black uh, infants die at birth than white infants or before they get out of the hospital. But then once they get above 15 years old, then it really evens out. So it's not just that we can say A equals B, but uh, it does here, but not here. And what makes the change and what makes that difference? Because we want to be able to address that as a society. So uh, did I read this already? Nope. A very large number of studies demonstrate statistical significance in it, or linear relationships between income inequality and health. The effects on inequality increase step by step from the most unequal of the 50 states of the USA to the most unequal countries to the most equal. Um, however, Kondo and colleagues find a threshold effect with higher relative risk mortality in cohort studies with higher levels of income inequality. I, I have talked about the Gini coefficient for probably 15 years now. Uh, because it's one of the most fascinating things I've ever found in social science. So we're get, we're going to dig into that just a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip all this stuff about different countries because we'll get into it later. But let let's let's learn together what the Gini coefficient is. It's a it's it's just literally a measurement of income inequality. So if every single resident in the U U.S had the same income, the Gini coefficient would be zero, okay? Uh, conversely, a country in which one resident earned all the income and everybody else earned nothing, that would be one. So this is a scale of zero to one. You want to be somewhere close to zero, kind of like we want inflation to be 2%. We don't want inflation to be zero because then that would border on deflation, and that can cause more problems than inflation. You don't want inflation to be 7 or 8%. So this week, everybody's excited that we're back down to about 3% from a peak of 8 or 9 in the last year. Same thing with Gini or the Gini coefficient is you don't want to run away uh, inequality, but it's improbable that, or, or nor would you probably want a society where everybody equals the exact same thing. So zero to one. Um, here I wanted to show you this, this, this is not the most important slide here, but it shows how the, the nuance of what we're describing 
makes things uh, different in terms of economic inequality. So there are a lot of ways, in other words, to describe income inequality. So complete earnings, uh, the overall inequality, you know, absolute poverty, if we say 15,000 is a poverty line, then that's an absolute number, uh, top income shares, uh, all that kind of stuff. Wealth inequality, meaning your assets, you know, not just your your income. So th this gets into, it just shows that some things show up at higher levels of that stratification. Uh, but what I want you to see more so is down here on the timeline from 1900 to 2015. And if you look at all of these, you see around 1980, the greatest upward and steadiest growth in all forms of inequality, because something happened, especially right here. Look at that. Look at that line right there from 1980. That's wealth inequality. Something happened in 1980 that was very significant in the world. Both Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan decided we're going to create this era of neoliberalism where, where we just want to give all of the money to the rich people. Because if we can give the biggest tax breaks, this is when the, the top marginal corporate tax rate in America was around 91%. Um, and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Donald Trump dropped it all the way down to 21% for a while. And that's why our debt has skyrocketed. So a couple things. A, I want this to remain very social, not political, but consider a couple things because these are these are things we could discuss we could debate and I'm, I'm not going to say there's one clear answer uh I, I really don't think there is but um I'll give you an example when Elizabeth Warren was running for president if people asked her how are you going to pay for universal um you know k through 12 free uh, education, including free college, like a lot of European countries do, how are you going to pay for that? Because right now that's not on the books. That would be a new expenditure. And she said, it's easy uh, for, because we stratify our income. We don't, we don't just say, oh, you're a corporation, you pay 91%. It's, it's marginalized income bracket. So when you get up to certain levels, so she said, uh, we're not going to touch anybody's income. Nobody's taxes are going up if you make below $50 million a year. So, uh, Kevin, I don't know if you make $50 million a year or more in your personal revenue. I, I do not. So I would have been okay. She said for anybody like Bill Gates, your first $50 bucks, it's all good. Nothing changes. But on your $50 millionth and $1 we're going to take three cents of every dollar and we're going to call that the new tax break or, or break points where we're going to try and help our society. We don't want to be last anymore in science and math. We don't want kids being hungry at school. We don't want parents working two jobs to pay for, for school. We don't want kids not build a college because they can't afford it. We want to catch up to Europe. And it's going to just, you know, first 50 million bucks, nothing changes. The reason I bring up Bill Gates is because he literally said, I'm not voting for her for that reason. I mean, a guy who gives more than $50 million a year away charitably, especially for education, 
Um, he said, yeah, that's good. I, I, don't, I don't mind writing the check myself, but I, I don't want to give it to, to the government. So we continue, as you'll see in some of these slides, to be a country who says we would rather just give the money to the rich, and we're going to call it trickle-down economics. And there are now empirical studies that show the failings of that, that, that trickle-down economics gives you more of this Gini coefficient split. It gives you more income inequality. So we can debate that if you guys want at the end. Uh, I, I have all the stats I can show you. But that's that's that break point of 1980. That's when a lot of this started happening. Uh, and, and it really created a, a huge change. So here's the total coefficient in the US. Remember I said you don't want to be, you know, zero would be everybody equals the same. Uh, you don't want to be one. That means one person owns all the money. We're we're approaching about fifth. Matter of fact, I think right now we're at, at about the halfway point, which is the highest of any country, uh, any country on earth. It's we are the highest. So we we love to make you know mega mega billionaires, and we used to have things like antitrust, anti monopoly laws. Those are just not enforced any longer. Uh, but the, the reason I, I brought up this book is this is a really, really good book. This is guy is a phenomenal literary journalist, um, you know, went to Harvard. Uh, you know, I think he, he's gotten all kinds of book awards and so forth. Uh, but Anand, you know, he, he gathered a lot of data that shows this. And, and this is when you guys hear me quoting a lot of stats, Some a lot of them I have gathered from him. So since 1980, since that change in neoliberal politics, uh, we we now have a a point where we can say here was a major cultural socioeconomic change in policy. What has happened? We've now had 43 years to measure this. Well, in 43 years, the average person at that 50 yard line, which in our country right now is fifty five thousand dollars a year. So let's say that's a school teacher with a master's degree with a, a few years under her belt teaching. Well, she's making 55000 a year. Well, that, if it were 1980 and we had stayed with inflation, that would be a $110,000 job. So in other words, she's now having to work twice as hard to make the same money or work the same to make half the money. That's the 50% mark and downward. That's the bottom half of our economy. Those in the top 10% of income earners in our in our country since 1980, doing the same jobs, working the same amount of hours, those people are now making twice as much money. So people who have second homes and boats and things like that, um, you know, that's that group, top 10%. Uh, you would be making $173,000 or more. The top 1% doing the same jobs, same occupations, working the same amount, they're now making 400% more money. The top 0.01%, the billionaire class, they're now making 700% more money doing the same jobs. And the difference is, instead of a 91% marginal tax rate on a certain level above what, you know, again, it's very scaled. Everybody starts out at your first $15,000. Nobody pays taxes on it. Bill Gates doesn't pay taxes on that. Jeff Bezos doesn't pay taxes on that. But as you get up into those higher income levels, a higher amount is extracted in taxes, except in 1980. Slice that. And the people who paid the price were the ones who were getting social services, 
or at least breaks, opportunities, so forth. So uh, that the, the evidence that large income differences have damaging health and social consequences is already far stronger than the evidence supporting policy initiatives in many other areas of so social and economic policy, and the message is beginning to reach politicians. The world leaders we mentioned at the start of this paper have all, ref all referred to inequality as a cause of social and economic harm. So it's, it's now well known, but who's going to make a change? Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Who was it today? I just read an article. Um, I guess it was Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett said everybody's you know nervous about our $32 trillion debt. The last president added an extra eight or nine trillion. Um, and everybody's getting worried about it. He said, you know what? I could I could correct that in five minutes. He said, all you have to do is pass a law in Congress, but think about that. The people in Congress passed this law that if any congressional budget year is not balanced, then those politicians are not eligible to run for reelection. Guess what? I'll bet they would have a balanced budget every year, wouldn't they? Because they would lose their jobs if they didn't. He said it's pretty simple incentive. But instead, you may have heard of the law Citizens United, which uh, I believe also in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, changed the game where now donors, political donors can be anonymous and they can donate any amount of money they want. So would Congress vote restrictive legislation on themselves like term limits? Of course not. But did they pass a law that said we can get any money we want under the table, meaning lobbyists and so forth? You can literally buy my vote. Sure, we'll sign that right now. Let's let's have that legislation. So, again, this is a very, very solvable problem, but it's not going to be solved by probably the kind of politicians who who will get elected again. Um, Bill Gates wouldn't even vote for, um, you know. Warren because she was going to raise his taxes three pennies uh, after the first 50 million. So let, let's change lanes here for just a minute into a parallel lane, which is uh, our costs uh, that we spend on healthcare because healthcare costs are a big factor when it comes to longevity and mortality. So we pay more than twice the average we eclipse any other country in what we pay for health care, uh, but we don't get the same. When you look at every measure of healthcare outcomes, you'll see in the next few slides that in, in one particular organizational study group where they have the 38 richest countries, we are often 38th, like we are last when it comes to what we get for our health care. Uh, and the reason I'm gonna give you a personal experience as to how this happens. So because health care is so expensive, we don't have any kind of basic universal health care at all in our country. It's just a for-profit system. So at the top, providers can just bill what they want, what they can, sometimes just taking what they can get. Uh, then we also have laws like an emergency room can't turn away people who are in dire straits. And so a lot of people who don't have health insurance go to the ER, they rack up all kinds of bills, those get written off, insurance companies have to eat it, and they pass on the uh, the the bill to us in terms of premiums. So as an entrepreneur who has to go out on the open market, I don't have you know somebody giving me healthcare, I have to get it myself. 
um, at the, the height of our family, when we had four children and, and my wife and myself on our premiums, on, on our policy, the best I could do, this was the cheapest policy in the United States. I was spending $1,500 a month, $1,500 a month for a policy that had a $7,500 deductible per person. It, with a 30,000 max. So every single year, the first 30 to $35,000 I made went towards my, my health costs. There were times because I, I'm at high risk for colon cancer. So it is suggested that I get a colonoscopy every year or two. First colonoscopy I had about 20 years ago cost me about two grand out of pocket. And, you know, 18 so years ago. I mean, that was, that was kind of salty. Like I got to pay two grand for this last year was seven. I had to, I had to, I had to write a check for $7,000 for a 15 minute procedure. I told the doctor, we're not doing this every year. He said, well, how about every two? I said, I don't know. Would you spend $7,000 for this? Like how fast does cancer grow? Like how long can I go? I'm, I'm negotiating with my own mortality because it costs so freaking much and I'm not poor. Imagine the people who are literally saying, well, we, it's, it's gas money. It's, it's groceries next week, or I go get an antibiotic for Susie. Like you're making those kinds of decisions in the only country in the world. I mean, that that's what's so bizarre in the only modern developed country. So that's a huge part of healthcare outcomes uh, within this this income stratification known as the Gini coefficient or income inequality. So here, here are these. I think I have another one. I found a better slide later, but this shows life expectancy um, at birth. Look at all these other companies. Oh, wow. Lebanon is ahead of us. Malta, Slovenia, Slovenia, I should say. Um, all these companies uh, ahead of us were, were 34th uh, in infant life expectancy. Deaths from all causes. Uh, way down there is the U.S. Uh, so this is at the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development. This is that 38 country member group I mentioned that is specifically created to try to figure out how to address. Uh, and again, this is not I'm not saying everybody should make the same amount of money. I'm not saying that we should have a complete socialized system. None of that is true whatsoever. That is absolutely not the case. There just has to be some sort of fulcrum that makes sense. Because even if you are the wealthiest person in the country, do you want to live in a country where you're literally stepping over homeless people? where nobody can even afford your products or services any longer. I mean, some people don't care as long as their bank account's growing, but there should be a conscientiousness at all levels of society where everybody's saying, yeah, this is worth paying for. Like, if you need more tax money from me, what do I get for that? Sure, I'll be willing to pay more taxes if I see that it's really helping society. Um, you know, that's that's where the focus should be. So in these 38 countries, uh, this is... Uh, again, infant mortality. That's where I said I had a better um, uh, look here. They actually broke out some of our individual states here, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, et cetera. But, but again, I mean, we're just way down 
Uh, we we are we are absolutely actually as a country at 33 out of 38 in infant mortality. In total life expectancy, we're 29 out of 38. Wouldn't you think the United States? I mean, aren't, aren't don't we brag all the time about being number one at things like this? Like we have the most innovation, we have the best healthcare, we have this. Like none of that is just true when it comes to health outcomes. And again, some of this we're going to get into uh, isn't necessarily just income because in some of these countries and they back up here like Japan and Switzerland you you could argue some of the environmental factors but again largely part of society largely part of what people have given government the the right to control um it, it could be some, some of the the actual lifestyle factors that are of an individual responsibility and we can commingle that with the way government provides incentive for health or disincentive, that kind of thing. Um, and again, here we are number one at cost per capita, meaning number 38 out of 38 for cost per capita. So once once I got through this whole position paper, I, I have to tell you, I, I was slightly disappointed that they really didn't tackle um, individual health issues. Like I wanted to see some differences of disease states and I just don't think it exists because I looked through a lot of other research and this particular um, from the Department of Sociology, from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, like this was another really, really good paper, but it also just didn't have that kind of data. And again, I assume because it's just not there. This is too new of, of a topic to really dig into with, with that level of of exclusion. So the health effects of income inequality, averages and disparities. And this is where they actually did a really good job of looking at some of the things that are on face value, just not determinable yet. But they did say this, empirical evidence on the effects of income inequality. The direct and indirect effects of rising income inequality operate simultaneously in the real world. This section selectively reviews literature on averages and disparities in life expectancy and age-adjusted all-cause mortality using longitudinal cross-sectional and panel data. We focus on the United States and Europe where relevant research has been most common. And, and they actually did dispel a couple things. Like, like they really did say, you know what, you can't put that in this bucket, like you, at least not yet. And so I thought they were the fairest of what I saw. But there was an interesting thing I wanted to show you guys, which is a comparison between Europe and the US. Um, but one of the things they did, they, they had plenty of graphs as well showing that, you know, in, in this kind of break between the 70s and the 80s, this is where we really saw, um, you know, things happen in terms of the, the Gini, Gini coefficient moving up. Um, and then we saw all life expectancy kind of going up. But then there was the disparity where for the poor, it was actually going down. So for the wealthiest, it was going up even faster. And for the poor, it was actually in decline for uh, the first time in many instances. So, so here, here's this difference with, that they saw was, was interesting. In the United States, disparities in life expectancy by both income and education increased sharply among both men and women from the 1980s until the most recent data. Uh, in Europe, however, there is no clear relationship between the degree of income inequality and the magnitude of mortality disparities. 
We have not found any parallel research on variation in, in SES-related mortality disparities across the U.S. cities or other geographical areas. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but let me finish uh, this slide here. We conclude that even though income inequality may influence the size of health inequalities within Europe nation, European nations, other characteristics of these countries must have larger effects. Policy decisions, governmental policy, policy decisions about public goods, environmental regulation and workplace safety, as well as customary diets, I mentioned a minute ago, cultural norms about risky behavior and historical influences can ameliorate or exacerbate health inequalities, even when they do not change income inequality. So there are so many, so many differences between uh, the U.S. and Europe, and I'll probably save those for some of our discussion because I listened to a couple podcasts also on that specifically this week. Um, but let me let me try to wrap this up. I would just ask you guys uh, if anybody has any questions on some of the economics. You know, I'm more than happy to to readdress some of that or extrapolate more, but. What I would really like to ask is, what are we going to do? Because this is getting worse. Income inequality is getting worse. Health disparity among uh, those who have and those who have not is getting worse. And there is now a a 19% difference in the wealthiest versus the poorest in our U.S., 19% in age of death. Meaning, you know, the life expectancy for the average person is 77, but if you're poor, you're going to die around 60. And so just expect it. Your, your life is worth less. Culture has decided, or at least the way we have our policies in place, where we allow breakpoints for people to have any kind of care or um measured care versus unlimited care, but there are other factors. I mean, there are certainly personal responsibility issues and some other things that I want to talk about as well as breaking apart what this really means. If you are somebody who has plenty of, of resources versus somebody who does not, what are some of those choices you're making that are imperiling your health? And again, what can we do about it? Ready for you guys to jump in. Sorry again for my voice here. Uh, oh, no, no problem. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate it. Matter of fact, uh, I had a note to talk to you at some point. I would love for you, Jen, to participate in a research review or two um, on some of these things, uh, because as a physician, I know you have some in incredible experience that we don't. So anyway, you have a great weekend. Appreciate you were here. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of these things another time. Who else has some thoughts? Maybe Kevin first. You're, you're. I'm staring right at you. No, got nothing to say. Um, this is such a good topic that Andrea listened and she wants to talk. Mm. Sure. You're kidding, right? <laughs> Somewhat. I mean, she, she, it, her. Both of our sentiments are how pissed off this makes us because it's embarrassing. Um, I mean, this is what we. This is the reason why health promotion in the class I'm in transformed to talk about health inequities because this is exactly why it's just so disturbing and alarming and it it, it just truly is embarrassing as a country. It's, it's horrific and patients don't deserve that as us being on the front lines and having our hands tied in 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 large part, but nevertheless, it's just it's Rand Paul's fault. 
Well, to to your point, so the joke about Rand Paul, he he is somebody who <laughs> constantly says we don't want universal health care in any form. He poo-poos it all the time, will not even entertain it. And then as soon as he needs surgery, he goes to another country to get it um, because he has the means to do so. And again, there that's just it. Like the wealthy want to protect their wealth. And, you know, the the antithetical argument is, well, if you start letting government control this, they're going to take it all and it's going to be inefficient. It's going to be horrible. Of course, that's a risk. But there's got to be some trade-offs, you know, and there are. The, the, these things work in other countries. Some of those European countries that do extremely well, they have universal single-payer health care, and therefore governments can negotiate the price of things and so forth. It doesn't stifle incentive. Bill Gates, for example, he started Microsoft when the top marginal corporate tax rate was 91%. It didn't stop him from being incentivized to create a company. And yet now that he is one of the top five richest people, now he's like, yeah, that would stifle me. I can't do that. But uh, yeah, it's just, it is embarrassing. That's a good way to say it. Uh, anybody else? Amy? Thoughts from another part of healthcare? Right. I know. Well, when you're in self-pay medicine, it's a little bit different, but it, it, um, one of those things I, I thought a lot about this since the call on Monday talking about like health at any size and kind of where healthcare is for our country. And you know, you see a lot of good and a lot of bad when you're in healthcare. But one of the things that's always frustrating to me is that we take trauma call. So, you know, we do trauma cases for primarily 99% of the trauma cases we do are people who have been in fights usually drunk and or other drunken injuries. And these people rarely have insurance, you know, so they get amazing surgery for free, <laughs> but nothing is free. You know, we all end up paying for this in some way or another. Yes, it is. Thank you so much. Um, you know, so we all pay for that. And that's, there, there's no free surgery. Somebody's paying for it, even if you're getting it for free, but it's just so frustrating to see. Thank you so much. Um, you know, how much of the system is messed up in that way, you know, how much it, it's just weighted so heavily. I mean, I'm in the same boat as you, you know, I pay an exorbitant amount of money for healthcare that I don't use. And I can't really afford to use because my deductible is $10,000. I live in fear of something happening to me, yes. you know, that can't be fixed by the doctor. I know you know the doctor I work with and you know, that's not a good place to be. And it's a scary place. And I, it doesn't add to anybody's really overall happiness or, or health. And that's kind of the point with what you said about the political side of things. You know, no one wants to really step up and try and deal with this, even though they would benefit from it as well by having a healthier society. Mm. You know, like, yeah, I could go on and on, but even things like Ozempic, you know, you keep people in a situation where you don't actually educate them about their health, but then give them a drug that can artificially on the surface, on the outside, weight loss, making them seem like they are healthier. But in reality, they're just now dependent on a drug for how long, maybe the rest of their life. Has that really made us healthier as a society? Yeah, well, you know, to your point, um, you're younger than me, but I was in the early side of Gen X and Gen X, because the end of Gen X, you know, it's classified as 1965 to 1980, 1980 being the that pivot point. Uh, Gen X is the now weakest generation, or that's when it turned in terms of having money saved for retirement. So 25, only 25% of people in my age category have any money saved for retirement. So talk about being on, you know, a meager existence where now you're also getting less health, not, not even health care, 
but being able to buy healthier food, pay for that gym membership, go on that vacation, you know, which reduces stress, which, which improves health. You know, all, there are so many factors that go into quality of life and health and just participation in civic society. Um, and again, that, that was just that precipice where we have created a new form of slavery called wage slavery, which is just simply keeping the dangling carrot in front of people. Oh, you want to make another couple bucks? We'll work another 10 hours or work time and a half or do this just enough so that you are now able to pay for what used to be part of your salary. Um, you know, again, remember the, those people at $55,000 a year in downward, you are working twice as many hours for the same pay. Um, and you have to get all the way up to the top 10% before you see an increase in that. And, and you're right. It just, it, it hits every, every part of society. Go ahead, Charles. Hey, I'm in a public place. So, you know, if there's background noise, I, I apologize. No worries. Um, you, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the term, you know, uh, slavery here and um the, the reason why that stood out to me is because i'm going to sort of talk about it from a different um perspective you know if you go back you know, several years ago when they were trying to pass obamacare or several years before that when i think it was uh you know bill clinton Hillary, Hillary clinton was, was trying to um basically uh, completely change the, the healthcare system to maybe not quite a single pair model but a more equitable model there's a lot of push push back on that and the pushback wasn't just a handful of republicans you know it, it, the pushback was, was also um their constituents right which which was you know we could just say roughly say half the country or you know or or more um depending on the time we're, we're talking about so so the question is if i think most people in our country are they know that Healthcare is a, is a problem um, for for our nation, but at the same time, um, they're not willing to to vote in a way that that fixes that fixes the problem. And so then the question is, well, why not? Why why are there such a large number of people just voting against their own interests? Mm. So that doesn't make any sense either. And one of the things that I think need to think about is that our country is one of the most diverse countries in the world. A lot of the countries you, you sort of highlighted as as um, being able to achieve this problem. There's a lot of, I would say, homo, uh, homogeneous uh, population to a certain extent, uh, more, more or less. Um, but in the U.S., it's quite, it's quite different. We are a very unique country, in a, and I think in a very very good way in, in many aspects in, in terms of uh, um, our diversity and across many lines, not just not just race, but you know just how you know uh, we approach uh, just approach our, our our society. I think there's a healthy a healthy skepticism in terms of you don't want the government and 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 uh, all of your business either to include your bedroom, which the same people that say they don't want the government <laughs> in their pocketbook. They want the government in their bedrooms, that, you know, in people's bedrooms, which, which is which is really interesting to me. So the reason why I say that, um, oh, let me to make another comment. There's a book written by Isabel Wilkinson called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. 
And if you ever get a chance to read this book, it is absolutely amazing. And what it does, it talks about the U.S. in the context of a caste system, very much like in India. And we do have a caste system in the, in the, in the U.S. It was built upon a caste system where you had those who, who, who owned everything and those who didn't own anything, but, and, but they had to work for those who, who um, owned, owned everything. Um, and to a certain extent, we're still seeing the, the ramifications, I think, of that that has created some of these disparities and ongoing disparities to the point where they've convinced a large portion of our country that to vote against their own interests, that if you give something to someone else, it will hurt you because they have something and they are at the lower end of that caste system. And, uh, and just by default, it will hurt you by giving anything to them. So I think it's going to be a, a, a really challenging issue to solve unless, unless we could collectively come to an agreement that, hey, we're all humans, we're all people, we're all trying to um, raise our kids the best way we can. We're all, you know, we're all trying to work hard and, and survive, despite what you may look like. Um, so that's just my two cents. Yeah, I just bought that book last month, so I'm glad you said it's good. I'll put that on top of my stack. Um, you know, I, I have since my early 20s, I have been somebody who listened to Rush Limbaugh three hours a day. I've watched Fox News. I've watched that transition. I, I watch just as many uh, left wing commentators at this point now that podcasting allows you to pick your echo chamber. And, you know, the, the thing is, I, I think, you know, the answer to your question, Charles, which is you vote against your own interest because you don't realize it's your you're voting against your own interest, like that you are you are told otherwise, you are lied to. And, um, you know, don't forget that usually it takes a pretty hard crash to get enough of a rebound. And so, you know, the Democratic Party had the House of Representatives for 40 straight years and they passed meaningful legislation like the Voting uh, Act, the, the you know, 1964-65 um, civil rights and so forth. That all happened under under pure democratic control. Um, you know, all, all of the American rescue type stuff. Matter of fact, 97% of all jobs created since 1980 were done by democratic administrations. And I'm not here to say vote Democrat. I'm saying there's a difference. And depending on where you are and what you want, like you should definitely look at what you're voting for. Um, so anyway, I I think it's what it's going to take is enough people to mobilize voters. And that's what Trump did, for example. Um, a, a Republican has not won the popular vote in the White House for 30 years. Um, the only two times they won is by the Electoral College once because it was awarded by the Supreme Court. And but but here's the difference. So it, it, there are four classes of Republican voters. There are the wealthy who are saying like Bill Gates, like, yeah, I'm voting for my my wealth. I'm in my generational wealth. I want to be able to give billions of dollars to my 19 great grandchildren as soon as they're born. Uh, that's the Mitt Romney class. Then there's the social Republican, which is, you know, all of the social conservative things. There's the evangelical wing. And the reason Trump won was he mobilized a whole different group. He took the blue collar Democrats from the Midwest. That's why he won Wisconsin. And he mobilized millions of people who've never voted before. 
because he simply said, look, they're coming to get you. We got to build a wall. Uh, we need to build a wall. The, you know, the Biden uh, crime family, Hillary, lock her up. You know, it was just all of these fear tactics and all that to say, as the cliche goes, elections matter. Now you have three new Supreme Court justices who have overturned Roe v. Wade, which even 70 percent of Republicans want. They're all saying, we we, uh, we were kidding, guys. Uh, that wasn't the whole span of the Republican Party like that was from 50 years ago. We didn't really want that. And all the way down to some of these economic policies. So anyway, I, I think even more than what we can do politically, because to me, that is the biggest thing, Charles. We have to be willing to explain these things in ways that matter to to catch smart voters in the middle. For example, Tim Poole is a right wing commentator who has more than a million YouTube subscribers. He's right wing, but he's center right. He's a Republican. He, you know, he says, I support Donald Trump, but we need universal health care. We need universal basic income, you know, measures of some sort. And so he's on the right kind of looking across the aisle saying, yeah, we this is not a hill for us to die on. We need some change there. So, you know, I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, but I think as people suffer more, um, you know, you're just going to have to see changes because you you can't keep going into debt as a country like we are. Um you know, one of the, one of the things Biden did was he was able to pass bipartisanly uh, the thirty five dollar cap on insulin. E and, you know, now Eli Lilly is whining, suing him, saying that's going to hurt them. And wow, if you're going to you're going to take our ball and go home, if you're going to cap our profits, then we're going to we're going to tell you we're not going to innovate as much. And so we're not going to give you as good of medicines anymore. Well, guess what? Fuck you, Eli Lilly. There are other pharmaceutical companies who will. So they want to cry capitalism and free enterprise until they, you know, they have to play by the rules and actually have competition. And then as soon as there's competition, then they want to pretend they're not for that. So anyway, uh, I'll, I'll quit blathering here. Uh, just interested if we have any more thoughts, Susan, I don't know, um, down there baking in Texas, if you're at 115, 120 degrees or not, if, if you have any thoughts on this topic. Well, I've got lots of thoughts, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in the same boat as everybody else, you know, being self-employed and insurance sucks. And my daughter broke her finger and it cost $8,000, even though we spend a shit ton of money on insurance and she's 24 years old. So here's an interesting thankfully, question. Thankfully, she has me to pay for it for her. She would have been in trouble. Yeah, here's an inter Yeah, I agree. Like my daughter, who is the single mother of my grandson, you know, she she doesn't even make the average. She makes far below the average person in this country. And she she can't get groceries some weeks. I mean, literally, even though she works full time in a in a white collar position. Um, but here's the thing. In 1980, the average CEO made 15 times his average employee. Now it's more than 350 times. It's a 3,500% increase for CEOs. And then they say, well, we don't have any money. You can't take it from us. We'll have to raise the prices on people. Uh, that's why inflation, by the way, that's why we did not go into a recession. And that's why inflation is coming back down. Almost 50% of inflation is just corporate profits. 
as soon as inflation starts getting high enough that the bigger companies can see that people aren't buying their goods and services, they'll say, oh, okay, now we'll bring the price down a little bit. Now we'll bring the price down a little bit. And right. so you see record profits from the oil and gas companies during COVID and those kind of things. We've just simply given all of the power to the wealthy because those lobbyists write the checks to the politicians and those, those poli- even our Supreme Court justices now are for sale. We're literally letting Supreme Court justices take money from people and businesses, and then those judges, justices, go rule on cases involving them. Like that is even for sale now in our country because predatory capitalism is everything. It just doesn't have to be. I mean, that is that this is literally the only country where this is happening. Yes, some fraud in other places. Yes, you know, all kinds of corruption in other places but not at this scale where it's just completely legalized and condoned. So here, here's a here's a good thing, though. I think um, I I look for ways to be charitable through all, all this. You know, so let's let's end on a bright note. Um, because I see things like this happening, I also see people responding. I listened to a How I Built This podcast with a woman who because of dire hunger in her own country, she started a service where she knew, okay, the logistics, the infrastructure already exists. We have companies like UPS and FedEx and all of these people driving around delivering things, Amazon vans. Let's find a way to do that food. We know 40% of the food every single day produced in our country gets thrown away, you know, through restaurants and spoilage and that sort of thing. And so she created this network where in real time, because again, spoilage is the biggest factor. So at the end of the day, you can be a restaurant or a grocery store that has says, I have these foods that are no longer sellable. And you call this, this woman has created chapters in different cities, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and they're now, you know, getting better at getting food to people. This is, this is the government not taking care of it. This is the private sector. And so this is the conservative orgasm. Like we don't want to give government any money or power. We want to let private companies do it and innovate. That's doable if there are socially minded people willing to do it. So I would encourage people, as this woman did, look for the gaps that can be can be filled. You know, look for things where you can even find a uh, a place to build a career. One of my friends created an inner city mission organization where he just thought, you know, unemployment benefits, things like that, that doesn't do anything. We need job training. We need mentorship. We need literacy. So he he built from scratch a downtown inner city organization that became institutional in our city. And I'm like, wow, like go you like one person did that and made that difference. And, and it's helped hundreds and hundreds of people, if not thousands. So I, I just look for for ways to do that. The, the last thing I would say to you guys is be a little bit more European-minded in that enough is enough. Uh, a podcast I listened to yesterday, this woman, this Yale graduate attorney went to live in Paris. And there's another entire sector. There, there's this group of people called expatriates People who used to live in the U.S., now they move to other countries because they're just better places to live. And collectively, there are all kinds of podcasts and YouTube channels where these people talk about like 
you don't even realize how bad it is in the U.S. until you get out and and how much better it is to live in other places. And this is the reason, because this is not to denigrate the U.S. They said, it's just people don't have the same mindset. It's not go, go, go. How much can I make? How much can I get? They just don't even think like that. This attorney, uh, she grew up in the project. She has a book called Project Girl. And then she went to Yasser, became an attorney and lives in Paris now. And she's people, she said, looked at her like, what are you talking about? Working more or working 60 hours a week or advancement? Or why are you looking to achieve things? Like, just chill the fuck out. Um, like, like nobody here thinks like that. We all do our jobs. We all love what we do. We love society. We love our communities. But at three in the afternoon, the day's done. Like we go home. We have dinner with our friends and our family and our neighbors. Like we take care of our kids. We do homework with our kids. Like we live. You guys in America are the only ones working 12 to 16 hours a day just so you can go buy an extra happy meal. Like nobody else does that. So I'll tell you another personal story. I'll end on this. Um, well, maybe I won't. That's a little too personal. But I, I am somebody who lives what I speak in this realm in that in my company, I have always paid people more than I make. And I have always lived as modestly as you might imagine, because I feel like enough is enough. And it's, it's not to prove a point. I just don't want to be a slave to that life. I don't want to, the more you have, the more you have to take care of. It's just so true. And as soon as you start getting in the trap of, well, I just need to upgrade this. I just need a little bit bigger house. I need this. I need a second this. I need that. You will find how much time and money you spend. The wealthiest guy in Indiana, a guy who owned a coal company, he sold his coal company, multi, multi, multi-billionaire. He has a 25,000 square foot mansion. You just would not realize what this place looks like. He sold his company. And then he got greedy, like, oh, let's take that money and let's, in, let's start another company. Let's do this. Let's do this. Guess guess who's 67-ish years old and just filed for bankruptcy? And his mansion is now for sale, 15 cents on the dollar. Because enough was just never enough. He always had to have more. And that's that dopamine in our brain that drives us to that kind of thing. But you guys who may be on living on less means, you, you may be at the average or less income, you can still make decisions to save money, to just don't pursue all those extra things that you think you need, but spend your time and your life and your energy pursuing better health, pursue experiences, take care of yourself, self-care, just extract yourself from that rat race. That's that's one of my most personal um, you know, piece of advice I could give because I, I have done that and it paid off. Uh, here, here's one of the personal things that I will really end on right now. Um, I've said no to a lot of opportunity. There are things I've mentioned that I've you know not done in my career. My son, who now just spent his first Father's Day uh, with his first child, so this was his first year to be a father. He texted me on Father's Day, you know, Happy Father's Day, Dad. He said, one of the greatest things I learned from you 
is is family first and i can't tell you what it means to me now that you never missed a single one of my ball games you never missed a single thing that you you were with us you know as our father i i know how many families that does not happen in and and that's what you miss if you spend your time just pursuing more stuff so anyway guys this i i'm not going to drag on this topic anymore this will be a one and done kind of thing but there may be some tentacles we go into where we talk about how we can better socially improve health and so forth. But but I won't hammer on this anymore. Appreciate you guys. Again, it was a tough, tough one, but glad you uh, were here to hear it. Thanks and have an amazing weekend.